He has betrayed our national security, and he will do so again. He has compromised our elections, and he will do so again. You will not change him. You cannot constrain him. He is who he is. Truth matters little to him. What's right matters even less, and decency matters not at all. I do not ask you to convict him because truth or right or decency matters nothing to him, but because we have proven our case and it matters to you. Truth matters to you. Right matters to you. You are decent. He is not who you are. Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. Our guest today is the man you just heard, Congressman Adam Schiff, the author of the new book, Midnight in Washington, How We Almost Lost Our Democracy and Still Could. He is the uh, chair of the House Intelligence Committee, a member of the House Select Committee on January 6th. So first of all, uh, good morning, Congressman Schiff. Good morning. Great to be with you. Well, you know, I, I was listening to I've listened to that speech from the first impeachment, and it's the warning that it will happen all over again. And you could have given that speech multiple times because it does feel as if Donald Trump was emboldened every time uh, he got away with something. He was emboldened after the Mueller report. He was emboldened after the first impeachment. Uh, so would you look back on it? Do you have regrets about the way in which Democrats went after Donald Trump, uh, given the fact that he emerged more dangerous and more emboldened after each attempt? I don't have regrets about how we uh, pursued the impeachments, uh, how we pursued the investigation. Um, You know, I'm obviously not a very objective source on this, but the reality is after that trial, after Trump was acquitted in the first trial, um, when, uh, as you can tell from that clip, uh, we were predicting that if if he was not held accountable, he would he would do so again. He would seek to cheat in new and, and even worse ways. Um, you know, I certainly thought a lot about whether there's something we might have done differently or I might have done differently to get a different result. But the reality is, as we would learn just uh, all too short a time later, even after his actions led to a bloody attack on the Capitol, mm-hmm. even that wasn't enough to persuade senators to finally hold him accountable. Um, and, and you're absolutely right. The, the failure to hold him accountable for his Russia misconduct led to more serious misconduct with Ukraine. The failure to hold him accountable for that led to a bloody insurrection. Uh, and, and you can draw quite a straight line between Donald Trump believing that uh, he was essentially above the law and accountable to no one and is going on to commit even more serious abuses of presidential power. So you talk in the book a lot about your um, disillusionment, your surprise, your shock at the way that Republicans rolled over. You know, in particular, you know how Republicans uh, responded to the revelations about uh, Trump during the first trial. Um, this is what you said during an NPR interview. As I listened to some of these Republican senators. They understood the president was guilty. They recognized he was guilty. They were surprised by the abundance of evidence. They only knew what they knew from watching Fox. But even when confronted with this evidence, it wasn't enough to move them to give meaning to their oath. So let's talk about this, because you spent a good deal of time in your book talking about, writing about 
your colleagues, people that uh, you had good working relationships and, and watched this gradual transformation of the Republican Party, which, of course, is the theme that we've talked about a lot. But you saw it from a very different perspective. What happened? Well, indeed, this is a large part of why I wanted to write the book, because there had been a lot written about the Trump White House by people who had left that White House, but not very much written about what was going on in Congress, uh, why so many people uh, in the Republican Party um, ended up betraying their ideology, their values, their belief system, their morality in the service of this unethical man. And I wanted to write about how that happens um, and, you know, what I learned uh, all too painfully was it happens one day at a time, one small concession at a time in the beginning, one small lie followed by a demand for a bigger lie and a bigger concession, a bigger moral lapse followed by another until, you know, these folks that I admired and respected because I believe that they believed what they were saying uh, had given themselves up so completely uh, to Donald Trump and, and his immorality. Uh, Robert Carroll, the historian, mm-hmm. I come back to time and again in the book uh, for something he said in an interview about how power doesn't corrupt as much as it reveals. It doesn't always reveal us for our best, but it shows a lot about who we are. And if you look, for example, at the illustration of two members of Congress right now, uh, Liz Cheney, uh, who um, is a person of, I think, courage uh, and character, uh, who said that she would not carry a big lie that would tear at the fabric of our democracy, uh, even if it meant losing her position in the Republican Party leadership in the House. Uh, And Elise Stefanik, who raised her hand and said, well, you need someone to carry the big lie. Basically, uh, she would do it. Uh, She'd carry any lie necessary to climb the ladder. And in the, you know, the tales of those two members, uh, you see how power has revealed who people are uh, that serve in the Congress. And all too many of them are people for whom the only really important thing is their own ambition. And that was, I have to say, it was a terrible realization for me. Um, I thought more highly of my colleagues uh, and to see so many of them capitulate the way they did was just a terrible realization. You at one time had a good working relationship with Devin Nunes, didn't you? I mean, you actually, you know, we're, we're Oakland Raiders fans together, um, but you watched him become a full-time mega fan. We did, you know, for years, we got along very well, uh, both sort of in committee and outside of committee. Uh, As you say, uh, we found uh, ourselves rare Oakland Raider fans uh, in the Congress and used to text each other during games. Uh, He once said uh, of the Tea Party at the beginning of the Tea Party movement that they were lemmings and suicide vests. Mm -hmm. Uh, He was not an ideologue. He was more of a kind of a John Boehner, a Paul Ryan what I would describe, describe as you know, kind of an old school, moderate Republican. Um, but he got close to Trump during the campaign. Uh, Trump asked him to serve on the transition team. And when it became necessary to investigate Russia's interference in the 2016 election and their efforts to help elect Donald Trump uh, and the Trump campaign's own complicity in that, um, he wanted to still maintain that relationship with Trump and conduct an investigation at the same time, and was not able to do both, which would have been difficult for anyone. Um, but it, it culminated disastrously in, in what's been called the, been become known as the midnight run. Yeah. Um, and he was forced to step down from the committee as a result of that kind of um, skullduggery with the White House. And it, it was a 
really a formative moment for him. It, it uh, ended up bonding him to MAGA World um, because MAGA World was the only one offering a life raft uh, at, at that point of uh, disgrace. And uh, he's been a part of that world ever since. It's been a, a rather shocking transformation and, and quite a sad one from my point of view. So you you read about a lot of, of the colleagues, um, including you know Paul Ryan, who um, you called him out for being too pliable for Trump, uh, Rod Rosenstein for not being strong enough to stand up to him. Uh, but you also make it clear you had no illusions about uh, people like Jim Jordan, um, Mark Meadows, uh, Kevin McCarthy, men who uh, you describe as exemplifying the notion that truth was for suckers and principle meant nothing. Talk about that. Well, you know, it's a, it's a somewhat different story for each person. Uh, for Jim Jordan, um, it's all a game. Uh, it's like a sporting event. There's your team and our team, and uh, you do what you need to do. You cheat, you break the rules. It doesn't matter uh, so long as you win. Uh, and I've always had the sense from Jim Jordan that the ideology doesn't matter at all, that if he were benched by his own team, he would just assume play for the Democrats. Um, you know, for others, for Meadows, I think it was the seduction of power of being able to ride an Air Force One and be a phone call away from the president and all the trappings of, of power and influence. Uh, and uh, and so, you know, while it's a different story for each member, um, the common denominator is when people had this um, intoxicating allure of power, it, it really tore off the veneer and showed us what they were made of. Um, and, and I want to say the, the most important stories in the book, frankly, are not the villains. They're the stories of the heroes uh, who were revealed by this tumultuous time to be people of great character like uh, Marie Ivanovich and Alexander Vindman, uh, Dan Coates, Republican senator from Indiana, who became the head of the intelligence community under Trump but refused to push out the president's false narratives about Russia being this great friend or North Korea and this love affair with the Kim Jong-un uh, and was willing to risk his job and lose his job and did lose his job, um, but demonstrated that he was a person of great character. And those uh, stories, I think, are really important to tell uh, because I think they're uh, illustrative of the millions and millions of people around the country who love and cherish our democracy and are defending it, uh, even as others, a much smaller number, uh, try to tear it down. So your book opens with the January 6th assault on the Capitol when you're told to put on a gas mask, which is obviously an indication. How do you know when your democracy is under attack? Well, when it's literally under attack. But it's clear that you are more concerned about the insurrectionists in the suits and ties uh, your colleagues rather than the shirtless ones in Buffalo horns. Of course, the, um, the shaman guy was just, uh, sentenced this, this week to, to, to prison, but the, the talk to me a little bit about the real threat, because it, it's very easy to focus on the actual insurrectionists, but you make it clear that the deeper, more serious threat comes from inside. Uh, that's absolutely right. And I was there for the entire uh, day on January 6th. I was on the House floor. I had been asked to be one of the people managing the floor debate against the effort to overturn the election. And I stayed on the floor until quite late when the police were basically telling us we needed to get out. And I had a couple of Republican members come up to me um, and say, you can't let them see you, meaning the insurrectionists. 
Um, one of them said, uh, I, I know these people, I can talk to these people, I can talk my way through these people, but you're in a completely different situation. And uh, at, at first I was touched that they were concerned about my safety, but that immediately gave way to another thought, which is if they hadn't been lying about the election or about me, for example, um, I wouldn't need to be worried about my safety and none of us would have had to worry. And that, that sentiment really grew in intensity over the days and weeks that followed because as I watched footage of these people attacking police and attacking the Capitol and uh, recalled their, their breaking the windows uh, in the chamber, I recognized that they really believed the big lie. They believed the election had been stolen, but the people inside the chamber, those insurrectionists in the suits and ties, they understood it was a big lie. They still understand it's a big lie. And even after that attack, when we returned to the floor that night, literally blood outside the chamber on the floor, they were still pushing that big lie. And it's that big lie that has put the country so much at risk. Um, the greatest danger, I think, going forward is not another violent attack on the Capitol, though that might happen. Uh, if that happens, that will be put down just like the last one was. But where, where these insurrectionists may succeed where they failed before is they are going around the country overturning uh, the, and stripping uh, the powers of elections officials, independent elections officials, and replacing them with partisans and partisan legislatures and running meritocratic elections officials, local elections officials out of town. They seem determined that if the Georgia Secretary of State wouldn't find 11,780 votes mm -hmm. that don't exist, they are determined to have someone in that position next time who will. And, and to me, that, that is the gravest danger to our democracy. So I know it's impossible to know the real answer to this, but what percentage of your Republican colleagues do you think believe that the election was stolen as opposed to are going along with it? How many of them actually think that Donald Trump was legitimately reelected? Almost none of them yeah. believe the big lie. Um, you know, some of them, uh, you know, they're, they seem very mentally unwell. So who knows what they're thinking? The, the Paul Gosars, the Marjorie Taylor Greens. Uh, for some, it's all performance, you know, performance art for them. Uh, they're just professional agitators. But for the overwhelming majority of Republican members, they understand that it's a big lie. And, and I would point to Steve Scalise, who appeared on, on Chris Wallace's program on Fox a month ago and was asked repeatedly by Chris Wallace, could he just say the election wasn't stolen? And he couldn't bring himself to say it. Now, you can see that he knows the election wasn't stolen, but he couldn't bring himself to say it. And, you know, I thought as I watched that, that uh, I can't believe that when Steve Scalise decided to run for Congress some years ago, he said to himself, I want to run for Congress so that one day I can tell a big lie about our election and undermine our democracy. But there he is, unable to speak the truth. Um, and, and this is what really puts our, our, our democracy at such risk. Uh, you know, what I learned in the impeachment trial was that there was no problem with the remedy of impeachment. There was no, I, I don't recommend, for example, we turn impeachment into a majority vote and make the Congress into some kind of a parliament. But none of it works if people don't give their oath meaning if they're not guided by ideas of right and wrong, if they, they won't recognize the truth and ignore it, none of it really works. And right now, uh, a majority of the Republican conference will not recognize the obvious truth about an election. And if you, if you persuade people, as they're doing, 
that we cannot rely on our elections to decide who should govern, then what is left but violence? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and this is you know, part of the reason why what Gosar did in glorifying violence can't be ignored because the, the whole big lie is an invitation to violence. And the number of Americans now, particularly number of Americans in the Republican Party who believe political violence is now justified, um, is at an astonishingly high level compared to where it had been historically. Um, and so this, this is truly dangerous. Well, let's let's talk about Paul Gosar for, for a moment. You, as you mentioned, you know, people who are um, perhaps mentally not well. There once was a time not that long ago when Republicans were willing to hold members accountable when they crossed the line, uh, Steve King being an example, uh, the, the former deplorable congressman from, from Iowa. And yet the standard seems to have changed. And Republicans, with the exception of Adam Kinzinger and Liz Cheney, are rallying around Marjorie Taylor Greene, rallying around people like Paul Gosar. What's changed? Because you would think that a healthy political party would be concerned about its political hygiene, that they would say, "Okay, Steve King is just bad for us. He violates our values. Why didn't they come to the same conclusion even earlier with someone like a Paul Gosar, who has been, uh, you know, hanging around with uh, with white supremacists for months now? Because they're not a a healthy political party. Um, the, The GOP, the Trump GOP has become in its leadership a kind of a cult around the former president, yeah. willing, willing to embrace his falsehoods. Um, if you look at the thought leader of the Donald Trump GOP, it's Tucker Carlson, um, someone who is you know, touting the model of Viktor Orban, the wannabe dictator uh, in Budapest, um, who found it very difficult to defend uh, fellow democracies uh, like Ukraine uh, and urge that we get behind uh, Russia instead. That's where that party is coming from right now. And McCarthy, first of all, McCarthy has no independent judgment apart from Donald Trump. But also McCarthy recognizes that uh, sort of the QAnon wing of the Trump GOP is now too large to be mm-hmm. forsaken. And, and should they turn on QAnon and QAnon turn on them, uh, they they feel that uh, they may lose their opportunity to uh, to succeed in the midterms, and so they're you know they're willing to get in bed with the devil if they have a chance at power. So your book comes out um, at, at at a time when, of course, the January sixth committee is moving ahead. We're also getting more information about uh, the the Steele dossier, and let let let's let's. I'm going to shift gears to talk about the whole Russia Trump connection collusion, uh, the Mueller investigation. Obviously, you played a central role in all of that. And you know, we have a lengthy review of your book, a very favorable review of your book by uh, Gabe Schoenfeld in uh, in the Bulwark uh, yesterday. But but he does. Uh, call you out on one thing. I want to give you a chance to address that. He writes, it must be acknowledged that Schiff has made mistakes in the course of his investigation. As Eli Lake pointed out, Schiff repeated elements of the now discredited Steele dossier in a congressional hearing, leveling charges against the Trump aide Carter Page that did not pan out and for which Schiff never apologized. So Congressman, talk to me about that. Well, when, uh, when, and I'd read the review, which I thought was a very good and fair review, I do take issue with his criticism in that respect. It won't surprise you in a couple of respects. First of all, there were serious flaws in the FISA applications on Carter Page, which I have acknowledged many times. 
But the idea that we could have known at the time of the FISA applications that a lawyer, for example, uh, who uh, apparently doctored an email had done so, that we could have foreseen what the inspector general uh, two years later would learn after hundreds of interviews uh, is, is simply to credit people with a crystal ball that it's impossible to have. Um, now, Carter Page, one of the reasons I don't come to Carter Page's defense is because I think he lied when he came and testified to us. Uh, and this was also someone who described himself as uh, representing the Kremlin at one point. Um, so I don't find him a particularly sympathetic figure, but nonetheless, there were serious flaws in his FISA application. And as we would later learn, serious flaws in a lot of FISA applications having nothing to do with the Russia investigation or Carter Page, which need to be remedied. Uh, in terms of my referring to the dossier, uh, what, what uh, you're referring to there is at the very beginning of the Russia investigation, I said that the allegations of this former and respected British intelligence officer, Christopher Steele, should be investigated. Uh, and I think it would be irresponsible if we ignored it, uh, given his reputation, which at the time was very positive. But I, I, I want to say also, what we would discover was far worse than what was alleged in the dossier. Uh, and uh, it was nothing but, I think, the relentless propaganda of Donald Trump with the no collusion, no obstruction that obscured that. But I, I would, just for the interest of time, point out one very salient fact, um, which has been, I think, obliterated by the, the propaganda. We did learn that Donald Trump's campaign chairman, Paul Manafort, was secretly meeting with an agent of Russian intelligence repeatedly and providing Russian intelligence with internal campaign polling data and their strategy for key battleground states while Russian intelligence was leading a clandestine social media and hacking and dumping campaign to help get Donald Trump elected. Under anybody's definition, that would be called collusion. And certainly if that kind of conduct had been engaged in by Hillary Clinton or Barack Obama or anybody else, the Republicans would be screaming collusion and they'd be right. This is gets to this question of the success of the, I guess, retconning of the entire Mueller investigation, because you, you spent a good deal of time in the book going through what, in fact, we did learn. It is now an article of faith on the right that it was the Russia hoax, that there was nothing there, that everything was a put up job. Uh, and so in some ways, this discrediting of the Steele dossier is, at least at the moment, kind of overshadowing the fact that there was voluminous evidence of the Trump-Russia uh, connection, which, which you go through. I mean, what, what did go on? How extensive was the quote-unquote collusion or the cooperation between the Russians and the Trump campaign? Because it was not a hoax. No, not at all. But of course, they, they call the Ukraine misconduct of yeah. the president in withholding hundreds of millions of dollars from our ally at war with the Russians to coerce them to smear Joe Biden, they call that a hoax too. Uh, and uh, and the former president calls the insurrection a hoax as well. So that's their talking point. Uh, the reality is obviously very different. Uh, the Russians were heavily engaged in trying to help Donald Trump win uh, for a variety of reasons, uh, all of which ended up panning out to their great advantage. Donald Trump was an absolute disaster for the United States and was the gift that kept on giving to the Russians. But, uh, you know, what we did learn was the Russians were engaged in a highly uh, well-financed social media campaign to uh, echo Trump themes during the campaign, to tear down Hillary Clinton, to question her health, 
to amplify you know a lot of the false attacks of Donald Trump on on Hillary Clinton during the campaign. They hacked uh, the the DCCC and the DNC uh, and drip drip dripped out documents through cutouts like WikiLeaks um, and DC leaks. The Trump campaign knew they were doing this. Uh, the Trump campaign was put on notice uh, as early as April of 2016 uh, when the Russians approached one of their campaign people, George Papadopoulos, and said they could help the Trump campaign uh, by the anonymous disclosure of stolen emails. The Russians also offered in writing help to the Trump campaign, offered dirt on Hillary Clinton, which the president's son accepted in writing and said they would love the assistance and set up a secret meeting in the Trump Tower in New York to receive the dirt, uh, and we're only disappointed when the dirt wasn't better. But they also tried to uh, learn about the timing of the Russian release of the Clinton stolen information. We're in continual communication with these cutouts like WikiLeaks. The list goes on and on. Um, yeah. The most important thing is, though, that Donald Trump invited foreign help in his election. He got it. He made use of it, and he yeah. lied about it. And, and when he was not held accountable for it, when after Bob Mueller testified, he felt he'd escaped the jailer. It was only the next day that he was on the phone with Ukraine seeking another nation's help in another election. Well, let's talk about the propaganda and the spin, because uh, you're rather unsparing of the role of uh, former Attorney General Bill Barr. Uh, Bill Barr came out and summarized the Mueller report um, prematurely and really did have uh, an effect in in framing the debate, didn't he? And it turned out to be, I think, incredibly misleading and dishonest, but it was effective. Oh, it was com- it was totally effective. It really was. Um, it was master propaganda. And, and what Bill Barr did is before he would release a summary, well, before he would release Mueller's own summary, um, he released uh, his own, that is Bill Barr released his own summary which dramatically misrepresented the Mueller report. And of course, we couldn't know that at the time. Uh, he withheld it for weeks before he would mm-hmm. release, the, release the actual report. And on the day that he released the actual report, he wasn't content to rely on his misleading summary of weeks earlier. He did a news conference where he misrepresented it again, even more graphic fashion. And then he would lie about it to Congress. Uh, there was a very interesting exchange between Bill Barr and Charlie Crist of Florida where there were some public reports that the Mueller team was apoplectic about Mm -hmm. how Barr had misrepresented their work. And Charlie Crist asked Bill Barr if he was aware of a discontent among the Mueller team with how he had characterized Mueller's work. And Barr said, no, Mm -hmm. uh, denied it. Uh, And we we would later learn that, in fact, Mueller had spoken with him and written to him and repeatedly communicated to him how he felt that Barr had essentially not honored the conclusions and the content of his report. So he directly lied to Congress. Were he not the attorney general himself, he probably would have been brought up on perjury charges. But Bill Barr's duplicity was completely effective. By the time the report came out and it was lengthy and dense and not easily accessible to the public, the public narrative had already been formed. The whole no obstruction, no collusion narrative had set in like Mueller had written it himself, and it proved impossible to discharge. I, I found one of the things that you wrote in your book uh, to be uh, quite interesting. You admit that if you had known how poorly um, Robert Mueller would perform after submitting his report and wrapping up a special counsel, you wouldn't have demanded his testimony. Um, it's, it's not so much that if I'd known how poorly he would perform, 
but rather if I'd known that, that he wasn't the same man that I knew. Um, that is, he didn't have the same capability. Um, that, that the protective instincts of his staff, which I didn't understand until he testified, um, which I understood immediately once he started testifying, if I understood that, I would not have exposed him to that. And so that's really more what I mean. I, I have just tremendous respect for him as a public servant, his integrity. I will say this in a, in a very kind of a weird way, Donald Trump and he uh, are reflective of, of a similar kind of blind spot. Donald Trump lies constantly. Donald Trump is just fundamentally corrupt and he views everyone else as the same. Mm-hmm. He projects onto everyone else his own lack of morality because he's a consummate liar. He thinks everybody else lies. And because he's corrupt, he believes everyone else is corrupt. And Mueller, by contrast, uh, because he's a man of such great integrity, presumes that in others. And I have to think that he was just shocked that Bill Barr would prove to be so mendacious that he would betray Mueller in the way that he did by misrepresenting his work to the country and that he would arrogate to himself, Bill Barr would arrogate to himself the uh, role of exonerating Donald Trump, uh, of preempting Congress in a way, um, when Mueller so clearly meant to leave those decisions to Congress. But I, I think Mueller probably had the same, a similar blind spot in that he presumed that others had the same rectitude that he does. It, it, it was the asymmetry in the fight that uh, Bob Mueller seemed to be fighting under or observing the old school rules where there was a certain level of honesty and honor and so was perhaps unsuited for warfare in the age of, of Trump. So on, on the subject of Bill Barr, before we, we, we move on from that, if irony had not already been killed a million times, it turns out to be quite ironic that that Bill Barr, who was willing to be this mendacious uh, about the Mueller report, did finally reach his limit when it came to lying about the election and and ended on very, very bad terms that, you know, apparently Bill Barr didn't see that coming, that at some point that Donald Trump would ask him to do something that that was beyond even his uh, loyalty. You know, Bill Barr should have seen that coming. And and in fact, uh, during during the trial, one of the arguments I made, to which I got no objection from any of the Republican senators, is I said, if any of you think because of your relationship with the president that he wouldn't throw you under the bus in a moment, you are mistaken. Um, And the, the whole story of the Trump administration was Trump advisor, cabinet member, whatever, uh, after (laughs) Trump cabinet member, advisor, whatever, would be asked to do increasingly unethical things. And some would reach the point, and and often at a very late point, of saying, I just can't go further. And then he would savage them. I mean, look look at Mike Pence. Mike Pence dutifully bobbed his head for four years. He was the, the dutiful lapdog for the president for four years. But he won't ignore the most basic, the most fundamental constitutional responsibility. And so when there are people threatening to kill him, Donald Trump thinks, well, that's just common sense. Um, common and, sense. And, and, you know, it's hard for me to be very sympathetic to Bill Barr, uh, who, you know, was authorizing investigations into non-existent fraud. I mean, he 
he went along with Donald Trump's immorality every step of the way until it was a step too far for even him. Even right. even for him. So you're on the January 6th committee and it feels like every single day we learn more information about how serious this attempt to overthrow the election was. You know, many of us were alarmed, were, were, were very concerned about what was going on. I think the reality turns out to be worse. So the, the question is that if, of course, this is unanswerable, but that's what I'll ask you anyway. But if we had known everything we know now, would would impeachment have turned out any differently? Do you think if we had known, if we had seen the memos, if we had known this, if these people had come forward and said what they're saying in these books now, if they had said it at that time in real time back in January and February? You know, it's, it is very hard to say. Uh, during the first trial, we fought hard to get John Bolton's testimony. Yeah. Um, now, Bolton wouldn't testify before the House. He threatened to sue us if he was subpoenaed. And, and we knew at that point that litigation would, would uh, be endless uh, if we went down that road. It was only during the trial that he suddenly had an epiphany and was willing to testify uh, if given a subpoena in the Senate. And, and I think, frankly, that epiphany had a lot to do with the fact that the Trump uh, White House was refusing to allow him to publish his book, claiming that it contained classified information, even though it didn't. Uh, and the trial offered him the prospect of effectively declassifying anything they thought was classified so he could release the book. I think that was his motivation, which was economic, not patriotic. Uh, but nonetheless, I did feel at the time that if Bolton was allowed to testify, that he might have opened the door to other witnesses and the graphic nature of someone who was the national security advisor testifying about how the president of the United States uh, directly uh, told them that he was withholding money from an ally to essentially extort that ally into helping him cheat. Um, maybe that would have been too hard for the Republicans to ignore. Um, well, what, I, I about the, what about the second trial as well, though? The, the, the post presidency trial of the president, where you you did have some Republicans that voted to convict him. But if we had known how serious Donald Trump's attempts to overthrow the election were, what about that? Would that have made a difference? You know, I have to say, tragically, probably yeah. not. I mean, we know it all now. Yeah. And Republicans uh, in leadership positions in Congress, including Mitch McConnell, still cling to him. Um, I mean, it really is incredible. Uh, you know, it Trump is. was just this week trashing Mitch McConnell. What do you call him? A but, broken down old crow? Yeah. Yeah. But but they they have created this monster of Donald Trump and they they can't control it. And in a way, Donald Trump has also created his own monster uh, among his base. Uh, and you see when Trump even suggests that someone get a vaccination, they turn on him um, and so no one's quite sure how to put the genie back in the bottle. But what is really required uh, for our system to persevere is we need two healthy political parties. Yeah. Um, I would like to believe that, that Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger represent the future of the Republican Party, mm -hmm. uh, a, you know, a party of conservative ideology um, and a party that returns to a value placed on family and morality and the question is, is that a near future or a distant future? And the only way it becomes a near future is by more people speaking out. 
The book is Midnight in Washington, How We Almost Lost Our Democracy and Still Could. It is an extraordinary, riveting read, whatever side of the divide you are on. Uh, Adam Schiff, uh, chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, member of the House Select Committee on January 6th. Congressman Schiff, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. My pleasure. And thank you all for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back tomorrow. We'll do this all over again.